0: How could every family on the face of the earth be blessed through Abraham? Only one way, and that is if through Abraham, Messiah is coming. That is if through his seed, there's going to come one who will be the Savior of the world.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogey. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we're in chapter 4 where the Apostle Paul gives his Jewish audience an example that they will be able to relate to, that of the great patriarch of Israel, Abraham. Just as believers today look back at a risen Savior, those who were justified in Old Testament days looked forward to a coming Messiah— This was true of Abraham, who the Bible tells us was a friend of God.
0: How do you become a friend of God? What does the scripture say? How are you to be forgiven? What does the scripture say? How do you get your conscience cleansed? What does the scripture say? How do you get to heaven? What does the Bible say? And so what does the Bible say about being saved apart from works? And so Paul quotes the scripture. Notice Genesis 15 and verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now he's already stated this truth back in Romans 3.21. If you look on the prior page in your Bibles, look at verse 21. Paul says, But now apart from the law, that is apart from any good deeds that you can do, apart from the law... The righteousness of God, and that's what you need if you want to go to heaven. You need the righteousness of God. You need the perfection of God because you cannot violate his holiness. He will not allow anything into his heaven that will defile it. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So for the need for righteousness that comes back, that comes apart from the, uh, from the law, apart from any obedience is not something new, Paul is saying. It's something old. It's something that has been manifested. It is something that has been revealed. It is something that has been made known depending on your translation. And remember, again, at this point in human history, when they referred to their Bibles, they didn't call it Old Testament, New Testament. They call the Old Testament the Law and the Prophets. That was the summary. Or sometimes they call it the Psalms the Law and the Prophets. Again, the same three words summarizing all the Scripture. And so Paul wants us to understand, he's already stated it in Romans 3.21, that God in the Old Testament Scriptures saved people apart from deeds on the basis of grace. God doesn't have one plan of salvation for the Old Testament saints and a new plan of salvation for the New Testament saints. And to prove it, he illustrates with Abraham. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. If you're using the old New American Standard, it says it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The King James ESV says it's counted to him as righteousness. The New New American Standard says it's credited to him as righteousness. Now, the Apostle Paul, five times in six verses, and 11 times in this chapter, uses this word credited or reckoned. Now, in some English translations, because they don't want it to sound too monotonous, they'll use three or four different words uh, as they go through the chapter. They'll use the word reckon or count or impute or credit. But in the Greek New Testament, there's one word used 11 times in the New American Standard, very precisely captures it. It's an accounting term in biblical days. When Paul writes to Philemon about Onesimus, he said this, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Or you might translate it, reckon it to me. It's the same Greek word. It's like um, taking a thousand dollars If I had $1,000 and I put it in your bank account, I've credited it to you. I've reckoned it to you. It's a financial term. And that's the word that's being used here. So Abraham, we're told in the book of Genesis, believed God and it was reckoned, it was credited, it was imputed to him, the very same righteousness that God has. So in verses 1 and 2, Paul is asking the question, how is Abraham justified? And in verse 3, he answers, Abraham believed God and he was justified or reckoned as righteous. Now, we've been talking about justification in chapter 3. And we saw it doesn't mean just as if you never sinned. That's maybe a better description of pardon. It carries the idea of not just being having your, your slate wiped clean, but then written on every page of your life, righteous. Righteous, righteous, credited to your account, the same righteousness that God has. Now again, we need that because Paul has already been arguing that all, without exception, have sinned and fall short of that needed righteousness. And so, because God is just, sin must be punished The God who set the penalty steps out of heaven through a miraculous birth where eternal deity takes on perfect sinless humanity and Christ becomes the propitiatory sacrifice. God gives of himself to save us from himself and the wrath that our sin invites is poured out in Jesus. And so in God's bookkeeping in Abraham's life it was reckoned or counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God And it was credited to him as righteous. Now, I don't want you to miss the importance of this theological word reckon or credited or whatever word you may have in your translation. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul put it this way. He made him, and the he's and the him are clear. The Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, he was sinless, to be sin on our behalf there on the cross, Our sin was laid on Christ. He made the one who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? That we might become, because we weren't before, but it's what you need if you want to go to heaven, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So on the cross, God laid my sin, your sin on Christ. And when you come to faith, he credits you with the very righteousness that he himself has. Now the Bible says all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused, or the Lord has caused, the iniquity of us all to fall on Him, on Messiah. It was a prophetic passage. Our sin is laid on Christ, and in exchange, when you come in faith, God gives you His righteousness. Now, the common descriptive term, as you know, I hope by now, from Romans 1 and verse 7, the common descriptive term in the New Testament that God uses to describe his people is that of saints. And the word hagios, or in the plural hagioi, means a holy or a separated one. Now, in the course of church history, as people departed from the Bible, and there were many who taught a works righteousness, they came up with a new meaning for the word saint. And it was a very elitist kind of status. And sometimes even flippantly, we as evangelicals use it in that way. We say, oh, my Uncle Joe is a real saint. But in the New Testament, every Christian, even the worst of them, are given the halo, so to speak. They are given the standing of being a saint because sainthood is not something you earn or achieve in the New Testament economy. It is something that you are gifted with. And so like Abraham, we are covered with Christ's righteousness when we believe, when we come in faith. Now, of course, what Christ did does you absolutely no good unless you believe. And Paul's going to drive that point home to us here in just a moment. And so, he quotes Genesis 15 and verse 6. Abraham believed God. Genesis 15 and verse 6, I suppose, is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. So, why don't you hold your finger here and let's go to Genesis for just a moment. And as you're turning there, let me ask you a question. The book of Genesis. If you're new, it's the first book of the Bible. Most people know that. In our English Bible, we call it Genesis. In the Hebrew Bible, they call it Bereshit. Our first five books have Greek terms from the Septuagint. In the Hebrew Bible, they use the very first word in the Bible, belashit, in the beginning. And Genesis is the book of beginnings. And the Greek word, genesis, means beginnings. Genesis is a book of beginnings. Genesis chapter 15. As you're turning there, let me ask you a question. What exactly did Abraham believe God for? such that he would be credited as righteous. Did he just believe that God existed? I meet people all the time. Why should God let you into heaven? I believe there's a God. Big deal. Every man the Bible teaches believes there's a God. There's no such thing biblically as an atheist. Man may say they are, but they're not. Even the demons believe in the existence of God. So I want to prove to you today and in the weeks that will follow that God has only had one way for all time of saving people. I want you to see today that Abraham believed that someday God would send his son. He didn't know his name would be Jesus, but he knew Messiah, a title. It's not his last name, Jesus Messiah or Jesus Christ. It's a title like George Bush or Barack Obama, the president. He believed that God was going to send the Messiah who would die for him. And I want you to see that it is in that sense that when the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, that we are to understand it. Now, Romans 4 presupposes familiarity with Genesis 15. I don't think we can presuppose that in this day. But let me just bring you into the context. In Genesis 15, Abraham is 85 years old. And God, if you remember, appears to him in a vision. Look at verse one. God says to him, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And so God pledges himself to Abram. It's, his name was at that time. Abram said, oh, Lord God, what you, will you give me? Since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. What does that mean? It means that the oldest servant, In his house who worked for him was a fellow by the name of Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham, in essence, is saying, God, I remember these last few visits we've had when you promised me a great offspring and we're not getting any uh, younger, we're getting older. It must boil down to Eleazar of Damascus because Sarah hasn't told me she's pregnant. Verse three, since you have given me no offspring, One born of my house is my heir. You see what he's saying here? If the heir is the oldest, then I guess the oldest in my household is Eleazar of Damascus. He must be the heir, right God? Look at God's answer, verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir. Now, as I read it again last night in my Hebrew Bible, I was struck by the fact that the very first word in the Hebrew text is No. And sometimes in Hebrew, like in Greek, you change the typical word order if you want to emphasize something. No, it's not Eleazar. Don't ever think like that, Abraham. I'm going to give you a son. The verse continues. But one will come forth from your own body. He shall be the heir. God is saying, Abram, please understand very clearly what I'm saying to you. And this is a turning point in Abraham's life. And he, God, took him outside and said, Look towards the heavens and count the stars. If you are able to count them, and he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now, whether Abram looked down at the dust at his feet or whether he looked up at the uncountable number of stars in the sky, he had a clear, crisp promise from God Almighty. And that did it for Abraham. It clicked. This is a turning point in his life. Now remember who God is and don't forget what God has promised. And so in verse 6 we find his response. Then, don't hurry over that word, it's important. It's linked to what God has just said. Then he believed in the Lord and he, God, reckoned him as righteous. So this is the promise that ignites this man's faith. He understood. The light went on. I came home one Sunday afternoon and on my answering machine was a lady who had left a message and she said, "Dr. Burgey, I have it." For the first time in my life I understand how to be forgiven and how to be saved. What clicked it for her? An open Bible. A promise from God Almighty. She understood the promise in the Word of God, and that's the thought here. Then he believed in the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, I find it interesting that it does not say then he believed that he would have a whole lot of children. No, he believed in the Lord. And if you don't get anything out of Romans 4 by the time we're done, and we'll probably be here at least five weeks... Just know that the Bible teaches that all people in all of human history have only been saved one way by grace through faith. That there's not a single sinner in the history of the world that has ever been saved by anything they've done. So we need to ask a question. When the Bible says he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, precisely what was it that he believed? Did he understand anything about the coming Christ, about the Messiah? Of course he did. Turn back a few pages to Genesis 12 in your Bible. Genesis chapter 12. I want to remind you that God had been working in this man's life now for some time. Genesis 12. Notice how the chapter opens. Verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now he's 75 years old when he says this. Leave the comforts of your home, your family, your friends, and go to the land that I'm going to show you. And then God promises him in verse 2. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. Emphasis is found in the original. How could every family on the face of the earth be blessed through Abram? Only one way. And that is, if through Abraham, Messiah is coming. That is, if through his seed, there's going to come one who will be the Savior of the world. You say, well, did Abram come to understand this is a messianic promise? And the answer is yes. You say, well, how do you know that? For the same reason, I know that in Genesis 6 through 9, that during that hundred-plus years when Noah was building an ark, that he warned people to repent. And I'm sure his ministry didn't totally fall on deaf ears. There were certainly some whom we know during that hundred-year period who believed. But on the day of the great flood, on that day when it came, there was only eight believers in all. You say, how do you know that he preached that message? We don't read anything about Noah preaching in the Old Testament because the New Testament tells us. God gives us divine commentary that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so God gives us some divine commentary on Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. If you want to go to Galatians 3, turn there or just listen. Galatians, if you're in Romans, don't lose Romans. Romans first and 2 Corinthians and then you come to Galatians. Now, remember, the Lord Jesus said said of Abraham, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Jesus said that Abraham understood something about his day. He tells us plainly that Abraham saw Messiah. Now, I want you to learn something, if you don't already know it, very interesting from Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, the theme is sanctification by grace. And so what Paul does in Galatians, because these people who are not lost but who are saved, but a little confused on how to grow, he takes them back to their starting point and he reminds them how they started. And he says, that's how you continue, by grace. And he reminds them of the false teachers who had infiltrated the church, who were teaching a different gospel, another gospel, which is really not another because there's only one. And he says, these are the people who are confusing you. So you're listening to people who have started wrong, who are giving you information on how to grow, and you don't need to do that. So that's the theme of Galatians 3. And so he speaks of our great salvation here in verse 6. He says, even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned or credited, same word, to him as righteousness. What is he quoting? What we just read in Genesis 15, 6. He is reading the same passage of Scripture. Paul studied Genesis. We should too. Notice verse 7 of Galatians 3. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Those who have as the object of their faith the same person that Abraham had, they're the children of God. You say precisely, who did he believe in? Verse 8. The Scripture, the Old Testament, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, non-Jews, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Now, don't miss that here in verse 8. Underscore in your mind those two words, the gospel. And maybe if you don't have it out there already from prior studies, write 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4 in your margin. Now, please note, he doesn't say that Abraham just had gospel or good news preached to him. But he had the good news, and in every translation, NAS, King James, English Standard, NIV, Net Bible, ISV, it all says the same thing, the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? Well, Paul defines it for us, and if someone asks you what the gospel is, you ought to be able to say it in three words, death, burial, resurrection. Now, I made known to you, brethren... Not just any good news, but the good news, the gospel, which I preached to you, which you also received, and which you also stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you didn't have a genuine faith, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And when, according to Galatians 3.8, did Abraham first have the gospel preached to him? When God said all the nations shall be blessed in you. That's Genesis 12 and verse 3. Now it's obvious as you read Genesis that in Genesis 12 when he's 75 years old he doesn't fully grasp it all at that point. But at the age of 75 he responds to what he does understand. Pack up Get all your servants, all your belongings. I know you've been here 75 years, but it's time to move. And he responds to what he knows in faith. And it's the biblical principle that light responded to brings more light. And so God is working on him, and he's drawing him to himself. And so 10 years later, he takes him outside of his tent. He says, no, Eleazar is not going to be the heir. One who's going to come from your loins and Sarah's body, that one will be the heir, and all the nations will be blessed in him. So shall your descendants be, and it clicks. In a New Testament theology, we'd say he got saved. He was born again. The whole thing comes together. He realizes a principle that goes all the way back to the garden when man, through his own works righteousness, creates his own fig leaf religion and God allows the first death in the universe to take place through the shedding of blood. It clicks that Messiah is going to come through his loins. And so we're told And Abraham believed in the Lord and he, the Lord, in a split second of time reckoned it to him as Righteousness. Now, I also know for a second reason that Abraham understood the plan of salvation. And the second reason given in Scripture is we know that Abraham was a prophet. Not just was he a, a, a great leader, he was a prophet. Genesis 20 and verse 7. Remember a fellow in and God appeared to him in a dream and Sarah, uh, Abraham said, Sarah, you know, she's She's, she's my sister. He tells this white lie. She's actually his half sister. And uh, God warned him, this king in a dream, as she was being prepared in the harem. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife. Why? For he is a prophet. You say, what's the significance in the fact that Abraham was a prophet? Because as a prophet of God, we learn in the Bible. Prophets of God understood the meaning of the blood sacrifices in the Old Testament. And of course, God is going to give him a a dress rehearsal for Calvary when he takes Isaac up there on top of Mount Moriah. Isaac, whom the New Testament says is a type of Christ. We're going to worship and we will return. He believes he's going to come back with Isaac because he believes that where he got Isaac to begin with in the deadness of Sarah's womb, he's going to get him back again. He knows he's going to sacrifice him, but that God from the dust and the ashes will raise him back up. And Isaac, he's just study the passage beautifully pictures Christ. And so we know that Abraham saw God's day, and we know that every prophet of the Old Testament understood something about the blood sacrifices, and Peter tells us that in the New Testament. Let me read to you a verse from Acts 10. Peter goes to this fellow's house by the name of Cornelius in a seaside town called Caesarea, and he says, we're witnesses of the things. He did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised them up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and of the dead. And of him, of Jesus, all the prophets, that means Abraham, all the prophets, Bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Believe on the coming Messiah was the message of the Old Testament prophets, and you will be saved. Believe in his blood atonement, and you will be saved. You say, what does that have to do with Abraham? Abraham, everything because he's one of those prophets and without exception every single prophet of the Old Testament from Abel the first prophet to Zechariah the last prophet bore witness, Jesus said, of this truth. God has only had one way And all of time in saving people, and that is through faith in Christ. And so Paul, back here in Romans 4, go back to Romans 4, I haven't forgotten it. Paul, back here in Romans 4, wants to remind us that his teaching of justification by grace alone through faith alone is not some new invention. It goes all the way back to the first book in the Bible. It's 2,000 plus years old, really by Paul's day, 4,000 years old, because it goes all the way back to Adam. And so God preached the gospel years beforehand. Hundreds of years before God ever told the prophet Micah that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Abraham had the gospel preached to him. Hundreds of years ever before Isaiah 53 gave us all the details of how that blood sacrifice will be made, Abraham had the gospel preached to him. Hundreds of years before uh, King David ever spoke of the fact that Messiah would die on a cross in Psalm 22, Abraham had the gospel preached to him. It was written down. God had revealed it to Abraham, to the gospel. And so the Old Testament believers look forward. We look backward. It's one way of salvation.
1: For a copy of today's study entitled The Salvation of Father Abraham, visit our website, searchthescriptures.org, and look for program ROM17. You can also listen to it through our Search the Scriptures app, available through the iTunes Store and Google Play Store. And, of course, you can always call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and request a CD or DVD copy. At Search the Scriptures, we are pleased to make all of Dr. Brogy's messages available online at no charge. But in order to offset the cost and to cover the expenses of being heard on radio stations around the country, we need your help. Would you please support Search the Scriptures with a one-time gift? or perhaps by becoming a monthly foundation partner. Get all the details by clicking the Give button at searchthescriptures.org or call us at 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow we conclude our look at the salvation of Father Abraham. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.